well, primary colors, everybody knows what it is. And primordial, it means the most important color to me. And and that color, of course, changes, but it's at one point, one moment, it, one color becomes more important to you. And, and that becomes the primordial, the, the, the couleur primordial. Hi, I'm Dan Rubenstein, and this is The Grand Tourist. I've been a journalist for nearly 20 years, most recently as a home and design director at Departures Magazine. And this is my personalized guided tour through the worlds of fashion, art, architecture, food, and travel, all the elements of a well-lived life. My guest today is one of the most sought-after interior designers in the world, India Madhavi. The Paris-based Madhavi was born in Tehran, grew up in the United States, Germany, and France. And today, more than 20 years after launching her studio, is celebrating her first monograph published by Chronicle. The single word you most often hear associated with India is this, color. With a sophisticated palette that pulls inspiration from a variety of sources, each of her major projects has found its way onto the mood board of just about everyone in the design world. From her all-pink restaurant at Sketch in London, her cafes for La Durée, boutiques for Todd's, and so much more. But reducing her work to just color would do the design genius a disservice. Her residential interiors have used a sense of shape, pattern, and materiality that have been widely copied. And her furniture and objects, the major pieces are represented at Ralph Pucci in New York, are neither overwrought nor too minimalistic and strike a pleasant balance between the past and present. I caught up with India from her studio in Paris to speak about her early life, the imaginary world that inspired her as a child, and how her space at Sketch became the most Instagrammed restaurant in the world, and what it's going to take to get her to do more work in the United States. India, I wanted to dive a little bit into your early life. You moved around a lot as a child, uh, living in Tehran, and eventually on to France with time in the U.S. and Germany in between. Uh, looking back on your childhood, how did that impact the woman that I'm speaking with today? Yes, I, I think that the, me, at least, I think that I'm always a bit nostalgic of your childhood, of what you've gone through, and you're the product of your own personal history. I think that my family history is really not only myself, but I think my parents have been because of the countries where they come from, my mother, Egypt, my father, Iran, and the changes that these countries have gone through. They've known each two revolutions each. They, they have had a nomadic life, meaning they've been moving around. And I am the, the, also a product of, of that, of not having maybe the roots in my countries of origin. And um, I think that I've really something that's part of me today. And the fact that I've been moving around so much made me very adaptable. I'm a, I'm a character. Uh, I understand the I, I have a reading and understanding of places, of people that is quite accurate, I feel. And so that has enabled me to be very adaptable. And I am a bit like a chameleon. So one, one thing, one of the elements that are, that are, that is important is that I, I have that facility of moving around and being very flexible and adaptable. And then the second, thing I, I would say is that moving around gives you, uh, I mean, I, I work a lot with my, with my own memory. And my memories in my childhood in the United States was uh, my first memories uh, belong to that, I mean, are part of that period. And I remember waking up with 
cartoons and uh, color television because that was the big new thing at the time. And I remember, uh, you know, Bugs Bunny and Tex Avery and Mickey Mouse and these bright colors. And, and, and I think in the United States at that time, it was all about technicolor and bright poppy colors. And so that's the way I remember that part of my childhood. And then from then on, I think I lived in the United States for about four years. Where in the States? In Cambridge, Massachusetts. Why Cambridge? Uh, my father went to Harvard. He had a, a Ford grant to go to Harvard. And and then he taught a bit at, at Princeton. And, and, and then my my parents decided to move back to, they, they, they imagined they wanted to move to Paris. And the day that they were at the airport moving back to Paris, where I think they had four kids at the time, they were told that the Paris airport closed down because of May 68. So they gave them an option to go either to Germany or to Belgium, I think. And, and, and they said, okay, let's try Germany. And uh, that's how we ended up in Germany from for one year. And you know what? My life changed from uh, Technicolor to black and white. That's where I kind of had that switch. Mm. And 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 you know, suddenly your your life, you you know, and also the the difference between Europe and the United States at that time was like huge. Night and day. Night and day. And and, and yeah, I remember that you know suddenly Europe was black and white. And uh, the sky was low and, and it was kind of gray. And then I realized my life was, I didn't understand quite what was happening to me. And the language was different. You know, of course, I had to learn German. And we, we stayed in in Germany for one year and then moved down to the south of France. And then this sort of the sun came back in my life. But you're you're always marked by these by these changes, and and you have to understand that at that time it was very unusual for families to move around like this. It was either diplomat families, or it was you, you didn't have you know I, when I moved down to the south of France, and you know I I would be I would always be the foreigner. I would always uh, the be the girl who came from elsewhere, uh, already carrying this name India, which was not a name. Uh, uh, people hardly knew where Iran was, you know. So I was this kind of exotic flower in a way. I don't know, flower or plant. And then I, I had to learn French. And I think that, you know, when you switch languages from English to German, German to French, and it's a lot to take in. And also at that time, you didn't have international schools all over the place the way you have today. And it was not that easy to. So I, I think that uh, naturally being able to draw, to express, express myself differently became something important. Before we return to India, a word from our sponsor, Fritz Hansen. In 2022, Danish design brand Fritz Hansen will celebrate its 150th anniversary. From its humble beginnings in Copenhagen until today, the company has produced some of the most important products of the 20th century and beyond. One of those designs is the Swan Chair by Arne Jakobsen. This masterpiece of Scandinavian design was first created in 1958 for the lobby and lounge areas of the legendary SAS Royal Hotel, completed in 1960. Despite its simplicity, the chair has no straight lines, always creating a groovy sculptural effect. And those curves are notoriously difficult to produce at the level you'd come to expect with a design like the Swan Chair. That's where Fritz Hansen's expertise comes into play, as each piece is completely hand-stitched, 
Not only does it look luxurious, but its quality means you'll be able to pass down this icon from one generation to the next. A sofa version of the Swan Chair is also available, and together with its single-seat version, you can create your very own curvaceous mid-century jet-age lounge. Airline tickets not included. To learn more about the Swan Chair, visit fritzhansen.com. Around the turn of the century, India Madhavi opened up her own studio in Paris after working for Christian Lieg in the 1990s, and today operates her own boutique, showroom, and exhibition space, all within a few steps of each other on Paris's left bank. I wanted to ask this seemingly always successful designer how she got started. Well, then, of course, after the south of France, I came to Paris. I started my baccalauréat. And then when it came down to choosing a field that I was, I, what I wanted to do, I really thought I would go into the movie industry. Uh, I, mm. I, I wanted to be a filmmaker, basically. And, and I was, uh, you know, at one point in my life, I, I was absorbing a lot of movies. And I was uh, <laughs> going to the movies three times a, a day because Paris al- allows that as a city where you have the most fantastic, I, I think you have the most uh, art and, and art cinemas around. They say in French. And I was absorbing. Were there any directors at the time that you were that made an impression on you? Yes, uh, all the directors. I, I think I remember. I, I mean, I, I know I remember that all the the directors that, that that I was inspired by are the ones who had a very visual, strong visual environments. So it could be Fellini, it could be Stanley Kubrick, it could be Vincent Vincent Minnelli, it could be um, Hitchcock, it could be any movies where. In fact, I think the environment was as important as the plot or the story or the dialogue. A lot of the um, uh, musicals I, I, I would see, um, and also Visconti, and uh, I mean, a lot of, you know, the French Nouvelle Vague and the German Expressionism, I went through a lot. A- and then I thought I would I would maybe do something with that. Until such time I realized that there was no real, sc- I mean, there was one, only one school in Paris that, that you could go to, and it, it was more a, a postgraduate degree. So I thought I would start with architecture. Like like Fritz Fritz Lang, mm-hmm. okay, and um and he he was he studied architecture and then he ended up doing all oh, these see. incredible movies. So I thought I would follow that path, and uh, so I started architecture. Disliked the studies I would. It was at the same time I think maybe too practical. The subjects that we were studying are weren't that inspiring to me. The the type of projects we were offered to do. They were more technical and more commercial, I guess you could say. Oh, um, it would be like a sailing school on the Brittany coast type of things that I wasn't, you know, so much in. It was very, it's a very masculine world at the same mm-hmm. time. All these projects were either, uh, you know, housing, but housing in the outskirts of Paris. And, 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 you know, I think that uh, one of the things that I, that I enjoyed very much, what I liked about films was how you could take your life to a different dimension, how you could dream and how you could create your own aesthetic. And in fact, in architecture, you're, 
you were first of all the production time was far too long, and also you you have so many so many rules and regulations applied to this field that it's not your your freedom is is um is limited. I I would say. And so uh, after school, you worked for Christian League for many years, uh, which surprise I didn't know that previously, and and. I guess surprises me a little bit, even though I know so many people have come from, came from his studio that are now in, independent today. What would you say you, you, you learned from your time with, uh, with, from Christian? You know, Christian passed away very recently and yeah, yes. he was, he's, he was kind of like a mentor because uh, when I started working with him, they, we were only three in his studio. And so it was a very small studio. He was working on the uh, one of his first public projects, which is the Hotel Montalembert. And, you know, I came from, a, as I told you, from an architectural background. And what was interesting for me is to see how in architecture, you always start with a site plan and you kind of zoom in the plan to suddenly eventually get to design the interior and think about uh, the interior spaces and how what floor you're going to put in and all of that. And mm-hmm. Christian would really work the other way around. Um, he could start only with putting materials together. And mm-hmm. that would be an inspiration for building the whole space around m- materials, around uh, maybe an object that he would have have found and I and I thought just a difference of perspective, but it works both ways. So, I I think I brought him um, the architecture uh, dimension of being able to work on plans. And when you first opened your studio on that first day and you sat down, do you remember what your your goals were as a young you know as a as a new entrepreneur stepping out on on her own for the first time? I think things didn't happen like that at all because, you know, I started from working from home and it was really between having a baby and, and uh, you know, being a mother and doing my my drawings uh, in between, you know, doing both together. And then suddenly, oh, finding a little space in the building, which allowed me to have a bit more. So things happened very gradually until such time I, I, I needed help and I hired my first assistant. And then just around the corner here, Rue Las Cas, I, I, I found this space, which uh, was close enough for me to have everything together. And uh, I never thought as myself, oh my God, here I am as an entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. I was just thinking of myself as, uh, okay, I'm, I'm, this is just happening and I'm going with the flow. Uh, and if I had a goal, it was to, to survive. I mean, to make a living with something I loved doing and I knew how to do. And when, when we look at some of your signature pieces, like the Bishop, for example, uh, Obviously, because this is an audio program, can you describe the bishop in in, in a sort of in, in its sort of classic shape, and tell me kind of how that how that came to be? Yes, I, I will tell you the story of the bishop because uh, I was designing for my, one of my very first and dear clients, Jonathan Moore in New York. He asked me to design a nightclub down in the meat market. This is in 1999, so just before the turn of the century. And he asked me to design this nightclub, and I had miles, and I was not in the club feel. I I just didn't want to do it so much. But one thing leading to the other, Jonathan convinced me, and I told him that I would be designing the club, but it will be like an apartment, and we'll call it APT. So I designed, you know, I had this loft. I broke it up. 
uh, and I create like a real feel of an apartment. And I created this character, Bernard, who was part of the whole, who helped me build this apartment, which was a, you know, imaginary apartment. So in that sense, I was telling stories, creating an environment, and this was very close to the movie industry, you know, in a way. Mm -hmm. So this character, Bernard, had his apartment on the upper floor, and below he had created his own nightclub. And so this space was about having two counters on either side, like two L-shaped counters, which were you know, at a bar level, and I needed a forest of stools. Now, when you have a space like that and you want to put 20 stools, if they have four legs, they're going to look stupid, right? So because right. it's going to be a forest of of, of, of legs. Metal legs. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So I said, no, I have to design something that's that was graphic enough, you know, sculpture enough that it, they could all look stunning and, and attractive and sculptural. So then you start looking at ideas that you... You know, and, and then I got inspired by the, you know, the bishop from the chess game. I was looking at all these, you know, different pawns and everything. And then, so the the bishop is at that time was a stool height in turned wood, different levels, and in between each level, it's sort of carved away. I guess you carved, car, yeah, carved away. The story of this bishop continues because after town, uh, I mean, after this project. Uh, APT, which had a huge amount of success in New York. It was like really the place to be. I was asked to design a hotel in Mexico City where uh, with the, the Abita group and Jonathan Moore at the same time. And and once more, I started redesigning, you know, this place, the Hotel Condesa, which I really love, which is still an interesting place. And I wanted to work with warm and cold materials. And I, I thought that was very much Mexico, the warmth and the cold. And I and I decided that this bishop piece, which was a stool, had really interesting qualities, but it, it was complicated to use. And so we made it on a, low, a table version, a lower version, and we decided to make it in ceramic. And, and so we modified it slightly, the proportions, so it could work. And then uh, we created molds. Uh, all this is, was made in France. And then I realized we, start, we, we could start working with colors. So today the bishop has, I don't know, uh, maybe probably 18 to 20 colors. It's my most iconic piece. It's now in the Museum of Des Arts Décoratifs. I've also made it in stone. I've also made it. Uh, I've made the baby bishop. I've been sort of working with the emo de Longui, a technique of cloisonné uh, to create with creating patterns on it. It's. I mean, my intro, the introduction in my book is all about uh, the bishop, and you can see all the very uh, most of the variations I've have done uh, on the bishop. I've made a candle with it. I've made a. Uh, I think I've also done it in salt. I mean, there's a whole bishop story behind that, and it's been also. I've I've created some tables uh, with it, yeah. And and the bishop has ac accessories, so um, it has a, a, a double tray, uh, the peanut tray that you can add on it, and and so yeah, it's like a, it's like a character, but that's also how I, I work with my with my furniture, they become a family. So, you know, every piece that I design suddenly has a brother and a sister and then has parents and then cousins and maybe, you know, so it becomes a, a, a large family. Do you think you'll ever get bored of it? Do you think you'll ever tire of it or it's something that you'll just keep returning to time and time again? 
It's funny that you say that because um, at one point I was like maybe tired of it, you know, and mm-hmm. and I was working with a friend of mine and she said, you know what, the bishop, you should overcome that because you're maybe tired of it, but I think it's really a signature piece and you should push it all the way. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I've uh, that's what I've done, and I've I've renewed it so much, and now we've we're working with even different colors and uh, creating, um, uh, you know, with the Imod Lungwi has a collection of a thousand five hundred colors, and and we're uh, you know making limited editions and the most incredible uh, hues, um, and I think it's quite. Beautiful. And you, you've mentioned this idea in your childhood of an imaginary space, uh, which I'm going to I'm going to butcher the word, but Palapim Sosak? Is that Palap- how you? Pa- Palapim Sosak. Palapim Sosak. And yeah. do you do you can you describe what that space was like in your mind? And do you still go to a, a place like that in your head when you are creating a new space, a new project from the beginning? Well, well, Palapim Sosak was a was not a a space. It was a it was a country. Ah, okay. Right? Okay, so so it was an imaginary country, like a kingdom. Yeah, it was a king, a queendom. Can you oh, say yeah, that? Of course, of course. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> uh, it was a dream place for children, I guess. So it had uh, everything a kid could dream of, and um, I get excited when I go to visit new places. You know, when I'm, I get excited. Like recently, I went to visit the Palazzo Gonji in Palermo, which was where the the the, the le, le from Visconti was was filmed, and in the big ballroom, and it was just so amazing to be there. This is what Palapim Sosak is about: having a place to go to in your mind that excites you. And you. Do you like to go to this place in your mind when you're designing a new? Not necessarily, because because today I I, I don't necessarily think about Palapim Sosek so much, but it, <laughs> in my family it's become a total joke. You know, this is when some place is, is exciting and beautiful. They say okay, uh, or when I when I just daydream, then then they say oh she's gone to Palapim Sosek or something. But it, it's really what can you do to make a place exciting. What you can you do to make a place, uh, uh, to bring joy to uh, a room, to uh, uh, to a form of happiness? And and is this sort of uh, idea of nostalgia important for your creative process? I think nostalgia is part of is part of me. It's a nostalgia of of maybe a life I haven't had. So it's a, it's not a real nostalgia nostalgia, but maybe it's looking for something that I that I didn't have. Before we return to India, a word from our sponsor, Jaloux Ebeniste. Jaloux Ebeniste are creators of collectible design made in France. Based in a medieval village in Brittany, the atelier is led by aesthetic director, Sandra Skolnick Jaloux, and master cabinet maker, Jan Jaloux. Les Jaloux design their own collections and collaborate with top interior designers from around the world on bespoke commissions for private residences and super yachts. And brands such as Dior, Lalique, and Cartier have all embraced their work. One of the materials that Jaloux specializes in is pyrite, as Sandra explains. Pyrite is a stone that comes out of the earth in perfect cubes and is often mistaken for metal. Pyrite is full of surprises. 
including its magical reflective quality and geometric shape. The size of the cubes vary, so we choose carefully to complement the scale of a piece of furniture for variation or a more uniform arrangement. But even in a small accent table, the luster of pyrite creates great drama. For more information, visit jalu.com. That's J-A-L-L-U.com. Today, there's such a distinct trend going on that uses a lot of neutral colors and natural materials uh, with a lot of grays, nudes, and browns. Uh, Terracotta cult, as I once called it in an article. Um, As someone whose work is so tied to color, how are you approaching this new moment where, you know, pops of color can be almost frowned upon? Yeah, I see. I, I see your question. Basically, if if a client comes to tell me, come to me, comes to me and tells me you cannot use any color, I don't know how I would react to that. You know, because I I think color has become an expression for me. I think today if people come to see me, it's because they're sensitive to my style, to and maybe sometimes I like I used to put many different colors together and bring a certain. Uh, uh, try to be as um, saturated as possible. And then suddenly with, for instance, the project with Sketch in London, where it's only about nearly one color, but on different materials, Pink Room at the the gallery at Sketch renewed the way of my thinking about color because I treated it in a very monochromatic way and a very radical way. So I, I think there's there's really no rules. The rule, I think, is to have no rules and to be very open to a space. I don't force myself into color. And I, and I know that maybe people expect color when they come to me, but I, I don't force it. It's just very natural. And I I, I think the, the color can really adds to, especially in public spaces, adds to the identity of a space. And I think I work a lot on that subject, on what is an identity of a space? How do you define an identity of a space? And that's a great time to bring up the gallery at Sketch, which is such a huge part of your career. Can you tell me a little bit about uh, what that process was like, you know, and how you found that identity with that shock of pink? I remember visiting London when it was still fairly new and coming in and, and being so floored by it because it was so refreshing and different at the time that there was really nothing like it at all. And I feel like everyone since then has just sort of <laughs> copied you in, in different <laughs> yes. ways. Uh, t- how did how did that uh, that amazing space come about? You know, um, Murad, I've known Murad Mazouz for a long time and, and uh, uh, he called me one day out of the blue and he says, India, I have this project. I'm not sure you're going to be interested in it because it's half a project really. You know, I, every time at the gallery, I invite an artist, uh, which I did. And I invited David Trigley, who has decided to do two, two things. He's going to do the drawings on the wall and he's going to do all the dishes on the table. But he doesn't want to do the furniture. And uh, so I really thought, maybe could you come and help us, you know, kind of finish what he, you know, his part of the, the job. And he was a bit uncomfortable asking me this. But then, so I went to, and I, of course, knew Sketch. And for the people who don't know Sketch, Sketch is a building with maybe four or five venues in it because there's a parlor, there's the bar, there's a gallery, there's the Michelin star restaurant on the top floor. And Murad loves, I think, 
to have a certain density and eclecticism. And when I saw all of that, it's like, you know, I, I, I just wanted to sort of react to to a rhythm of spaces. And it was so dense that I told them, I said, you know, let's do it all pink because because I think that you need a bit of freshness. And also this room was big and grand and nearly like a cube. Um, I knew I knew he wanted to do a modern brasserie. I knew they were going to serve tea. And so it's like one of those moments in your career where you have one idea that comes out. Uh, it's like 20 years of experience that just pops out in five minutes. You know what <laughs> I mean? You just say, okay, it should be pink. And he's, I remember his answer. He, he answered, oh, I don't like pink, but just go ahead and do what you have to do. So then I, I started working on the plans, and I, I, I sort of, uh, you know, created this look of very structured banquets. In fact, and then we it, all this happened very quickly because I had to move on on on, on a very, uh, the, the he gave me three months to design it, to produce it, and to make it. You oh, know, wow. so it was okay. like really quick. So I took one of my chairs that I already had, and I created this uh, the Charlotte armchair that you know now that has these like finger this biscuits on the outside that really looks like a cookie and uh also you have to realize that at the time you didn't have any pink anything no pink leather no. available no pink velvet anywhere so all this was we had to produce it do you remember the order do you remember the order of pink velvet yeah of course yeah i, I remember i don't remember the quantity but i remember receiving all these samples and no i don't like this pink. and I, I remember also with colors because you know you pick the colors here in your studio in paris and you think okay this is the right pink and then you take them to london there's no daylight in the room uh you have uh so you want to see what the pink looks like so I, I think I worked with five different pinks and Mohad was like what are you doing with your pinks you know pink is a pink and I'm like no I'm looking for the essence of pink you know what we all had in mind so I remember the opening night it was also the beginning of Instagram and uh and suddenly the room when it all came together was was really very moving for me because it was like I was in a room of a movie. I could have been in a room either of a Stanley Kubrick or I think I could have been in a movie of a David Lynch or something. There, there was something very special and cin cinematographic about it. And also this pink light made everybody look so beautiful. Before we return to India, a word from our sponsor, Fort Street Studio. Fort Street Studios' sumptuous carpets are expertly hand-knotted and executed in nuanced color combinations that are the signature of the studio's painterly designs, which originate from watercolor art. One of the studio's hallmarks are special commissions in non-repeating and asymmetrical carpet designs. Fort Street Studios' creative directors take their cues from the worlds of fashion, jewelry, and contemporary art for inspiration. But everything can be customized to fit the demands of a special interior. The brand has a special access to the world's best dye masters in the artisanal rug industry and can easily match or coordinate with the fabrics, paints, and finishes in any room. Harmonious palettes of color can even contain unexpected tones that create a sparkle or shadowy effect. To create your own bespoke masterpiece carpet, visit fortstreetstudio.com.
and, and you mentioned places like Tehran and the, and the sort of the color and the shapes and the sweetness from those spaces. And you've been returning to Tehran, you know, for about a decade now, coming back and forth. What, what prompted that switch to go back? What made you kind of want to, you know, make this sort of return trip again and again? Well, first of all, because my, my parents lived there and my father was ill and I, and I felt that I needed to spend the time. It was many things. It was that was one one element but also at one point in my life i i just started feeling like a like a plant in a pot uh with only roots and no earth left and mm. so i i i felt that i needed the to be grounded to go and get that that earth that i needed so i started going to egypt quite a bit and i started going to iran as well and nourish my my mind and my uh, and get to know these countries a bit more. In Egypt, I started going to a place in the desert, which is close to the Libyan border called, called Siwa, which is a oasis really in the Sahara. A cousin of mine was working on a eco-lodge over there, and I sort of started getting involved into the construction, which is a very vernacular way of building with um mud and salt blocks and and palm trees and sandstone and these wonderful palette of materials which is the contrary of what i do anywhere else yeah it's it's the one thing it stands out in your obviously in in, in your portfolio as something that is completely you could still tell it's you but maybe not if, if someone didn't tell you that it was you yeah, it, it was really working with the local materiality of uh, the materials, and and so uh, of course there's there's no color. But then I started working on textures and pushing the materials a bit further and working with all the the local builders. It was one of the most incredible experiences I've I've, I've gone through uh, working. The work that I did in Siwa was over a decade, really, and uh, creating objects and salt. Now, today, it's kind of... Uh, uh, in fashion, in a way. <laughs> yeah. But I think back then, I, I was one of the first one to, to... And it was very funny because when I started creating objects and salt the local community, the seaweeds didn't know that that was something very, that they could do that. Mm. So the Ecolodge had a little shop and I started, we started putting these uh, salt votives for, for, for sale. And I created a whole bunch of other little objects. And, and suddenly they realized that that, that was a selling item. And now in the oasis, you have there's not one shop that doesn't sell these objects and salt. And does that project make you want to do more things like that, where it's really about you know shape and and texture and and less about? I think that what was what was really interesting is not not only about it's a global project, and that was what's so interesting is how you could bring together a community around a, a project that was completely sustainable, and how you can actually look around you, find the local resources, and do something with the local resources uh, in relation to a community. Have the yeah exactly the community involved, and and this project just goes beyond tourism it's beyond it's really it's not my projects it's uh, Dr. Munir Namatella's project but I was very proud to be able to be part of it and I think if you look at it in a bigger picture that was what what was really interesting you've done you know uh, installations for Ralph Pucci of course here in New York where you, you saw uh, many of your beautiful pieces and 
you, one of your first projects was in Miami back in 2001, the, the Townhouse Hotel. Um, my question is, how do we convince you to come back to the States and to do more work here? Um, all right. So Townhouse was one of my very first projects with Jonathan Moore, and I loved doing that project uh, with him. And uh, it was in 1999, in fact, and not 2001. I think that he was also, I mean, it was a, a fantastic to work with him because we, it was a lot of fun uh, working on a project, a hotel project, because it was kind of a free, uh, an open page for all of us as a designer to do whatever we want. Now, hotels have become much more part of an industry. Uh, the world of interior design has become a lot more, let's say, a, 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 a bit less adventurous. You know, in the United States, what you do is either you do residential projects, uh, which you carry all the way through, you have to finish. And I would say, I mean, you you have to do a complete job where you, you choose design the space, the furniture, the art, up to the maybe the plates. I like to think of homes a bit differently. I see homes like portraits of people you know so i i really like that that moment where you you let go of a space and you let the person take take over and make it its own you do the, you know really the bases and and then it, it has to grow uh with the person with, with whoever's living in the house uh i would love to come back to, to to do more work in the united states i think it's it's a uh uh, uh you know i just have to find the right project and what's next for your studio? What does is, what is 2022 look like in this sort of strange time that we're in where we're, we're sort of coming out of this pandemic, but slowly? And uh, what is this next year after this, after this book launch look like for you? Uh, well, you know, we, we do have a lot of projects lined up. Uh, um, one is coming out in uh, December uh, with... Uh, I'm doing the scenography, which is another part of the uh, work I do uh, for the Museum des Arts Décoratifs on the history of French popular design mm. um, with this, these two companies, Présunique and Monoprix, which are really local uh, institutions, really. Uh, so that's super exciting. Uh, then, of course, I'm doing... I'm working a lot in the south of France. I'm doing a few houses in, in, in Saint-Tropez. Uh, a few in Arles. Um, I work a lot down south. I just completed a restaurant in Italy for Ferrari with with uh, Chef Mo uh, Massimo Bottura, who's one of the most incredible Italian chefs. Uh, Where in well, Italy is it? It's in Maranello near near Modena. And uh, what else am I doing? Um, I keep on forgetting when when I'm asked. Like suddenly. Uh, I have a whole bunch of, uh, uh, you know, projects that I can't design projects that I'm not supposed to speak about because, you know, they need sure, to be. they're all secret. <laughs> yeah, they're all secret and will be revealed uh, in time. I'm um, probably going to have uh, work on an exhibition. Um, a lot of interesting things are coming out, but once more, I can't really say what, but um, I'm planning to have an exhibition also in uh, Athens and then I have my own work here you know my own furniture that's 
always on sale here and 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 uh my own little project room which is a sort of a free expression i can do installations of of whatever i want um so things have been very very hectic here and i think more and more so is like the pandemic is like we're trying to catch up the time that that we that was um a sort of on hold for a moment but um yeah i'm i'm, I'm sort of i'm, I'm quite busy <laughs> you sound extremely busy and when you look at this book and you put it down and you see such a huge part of your life reflected in it you know from a to z for the past 20 years what do you want people to know about about this book and how it represents you sometimes the process is as as interesting as the result is being able to to actually tell stories through have a narrative uh that can come into a a, a three-dimensional form uh but also to maybe remove borders between different disciplines and that it all can work together um you don't have to be a decorator or interior designer or a filmmaker or uh just a product designer that all these fields can be all these borders that we've put for so many years between all this can be interdisciplinary and you can actually bring all these different sides of yourself into your one career and always surprise yourself and challenge yourself to do different things and to be excited about them. Thank you to India and to her team in Paris for making this episode happen. A special thanks to Zoe Settle at Ralph Pucci. You can find India Madavi's monograph wherever books are sold. And visit indiamadavi.com for more information. The editor of this episode is Stan Hall. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of The Grand Tourist. To keep this going, please follow me on Instagram at Dan Rubenstein to learn more. And don't forget to follow The Grand Tourist on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen, and leave us a rating or comment. Every little bit helps. Till next time. <laughs>